Suddenly, the high country hunter was in vogue and hunters streamed into the western wilderness country. Places such as Wyoming's Grays River and Hoback, Colorado's federal wilderness areas, Idaho's Sawtooth Range, Utah's Wasatch, and Nevada's Ruby Mountains were the places to find big mule deer. I knew a few mule deer hunters who got in on the bounty. They were seeing and killing giant bucks like those that hadn't been seen since the 1960s. Robbie Denning here. Just me today here on the Rockcast. You've probably noticed since we relaunched back in March after Jordan Bud's departure that there's multiple hosts coming on the podcast. That's pretty much by design. You're going to hear podcasts from myself, Ryan Avery, Sam Weaver, he's handling our Tipsy Tuesdays, and then various podcasts from one of our new hosts, Travis Hobbs. That was by design that we've got multiple hosts on here, simply because we're all busy, but we want to keep the Rockcast active. And with multiple hosts participating the way that we're doing it, it will ensure that you've got a good flow of content coming. So when you listen in each day, it might be a different host. Just check the show notes. You'll be able to tell who's going to be on that day, and then you can decide if you're going to listen in. Let's see. Uh, Last week, you should have heard Sam's Tipsy Tuesday with our member Corbland on the CBC stats. Corbland was nice enough to take the time to go back through the cold bow and assemble the stats, uh, average MER, how many shots missed, and cool things like the, the number one bow in the competition, both trad and compound, and just cool stuff like that. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. Uh, we also have uh, a rumor here that Ryan's recording a podcast with Gunworks. In fact, it may already have been up by the time this one posts. It just depends on the order that we get them recorded. But that'll be a good podcast. It'll go along with our current challenge that's going on, the cold boar challenge. So yeah, we got the cold bow challenge. That's an archery challenge. And now we have the new cold boar challenge. That's a rifle challenge. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk more about that here in the podcast, but, uh, let's see. So thanks to Corblin for assembling those CBC stats for the cold bow. And I wanted to just touch on that real quick on kind of how it applied to me. The average maximum effective range chosen in the cold bow was 56 yards. And when he ran the stats, only 67% of archers were getting all five of their arrows into the vital. Um, I actually said that wrong. Um, only a 67% hit rate for the archers that are shooting broadheads. So for everybody that chose broadheads for the cold bow, they were dropping uh, at least 33% of their arrows. And I was right in there too. I missed two of the five arrows, so I was at 60% for the challenge. So this is how it, it applied to me personally, and I got thinking about it and I do this every year after the cold bow is just what did I learn? What's the takeaway from it? And I came up with three things, uh, with, with the average shooter dropping 33% of their arrows, basically two shots, 
that we all need to be practicing more. I think that's a given. And as a caveat to practicing more, learning more about our equipment. That's really what the spirit of the cold bow challenge is, is getting people to get set up earlier in the year and have more time to practice. We know life is busy and all of a sudden it's August. You haven't shot that much. Some of us have not shot at all. And uh, we're just not doing ourselves or the wildlife a favor when we do that. And one of the most common comments we get for feedback on the cold bow is that it just helped people get ready earlier and and you just learn more about your equipment um, and then the third thing obviously with a, a maximum effective range of 56 yards chosen for the cold bow most of us are not up to the task we need to stalk closer including me and the cool thing about stalking closer it just puts the odds in your favor even if your mer was 80 yards if you're stalking into 40 uh, now, instead of uh, picking a vital, you're picking a, a hair within the vital. So just just always try to stalk closer. I realize that, you know, you can blow some stalks doing that too. Uh, but if if there's a chance to get closer, do it. Um, on, the, on the second thing I mentioned about learning more about our equipment, uh, as, we, as we move into the 3D courses now, which I've done here the last couple of weeks since the cold bow ended, um, Make sure that your bow is sighted in precisely. So for the cold bow challenge, I just sighted in for 50 yards because I was going to shoot 55 with a pin gap. So that's really all I paid attention to. And, you know, I, I, I run a 30, 40, 50, and a 60-yard pin on my bow. Um, I don't run a 20 because my bow shoots flat enough. I can use my 30 at 20, and I've never had a shot at a mule deer under... I think 37 yards and so so that's personally how I set mine up but um, I, I had sighted in those other pins besides the 50 but then when I moved into the 3d courses I, my scores were lower than last year I, I always keep a simple hit miss score when I'm shooting a 3d course now this is obviously not when it's a a, a a 3d event you know with other shooters then I just do the standard uh, 14, 12, 10, 8, 5 ring score. But when I'm just shooting on my own, I just go to the range, I just keep a simple tab of hit miss. And if I'm in the 8 ring, which is the vitals, I count it as a hit. If I'm outside of that, I count it as a miss. And I've done this for years. And so I always know when I, when I get to the range in the spring, after the cold bow's over, I should be roughly 85 to 90% hits on vitals. Now, this is at a particular range I use, Blackfoot River Bowman's range here uh, down by Blackfoot. Um, it's open to the public. Anybody around here should shoot it. You should join them, uh, support them. That, that's a good organization, especially where they have the range open all the time um, outside of their shoots where you can just go. You can't shoot the 3D targets, but you can shoot their butts. Um, but anyways, I'm always... I don't know, 80, 90%, 85, 90%, I think is what I am on just scoring hits and misses. And so after the cold bow, when I went down there, man, my first time on the, on the range, I shot the A course and the B course. Uh, I was only oh, in the mid sixties and I, I just thought, what in the world is going on? And, and, and towards the, the end of the B course, I just realized I'm, I, I'm not sighted in properly. And, uh, th this is something 
that you've really got to pay attention to. And you high-level archers, man, you can you can hit the fast-forward button. I really, some of this stuff is really redundant for you. I'm, I'm talking to regular blue-collar guys like me that are, you know, struggling to shoot and, and get their arrows in and, and learn as much as we can about our bows. But make sure your bow is precisely sighted in. And this is what I mean by it. Here at my at my home course, I've got a 100 yard course here. I mostly shoot 60 and in. Uh, 60 and out is just to, you know, check the tune on my bow and play around a little bit. But my 30 yard pin, I, I was shooting just fine here at the house, uh, shooting at uh, my, my matrix or my bag target. I don't know, a three inch little vital. I was, I was hitting it and uh, just didn't pay much attention to it. When I got down to the range and I noticed my, my misses were stacking up, I noticed I was missing low and it wasn't on the further targets. It was on the closer targets, kind of that 25 to 37 yard range where I would use that 30 yard pin and just pin gap. And uh, so uh, I, I stepped back to the to the practice range and really checked my 30 yard pin against my range finder. It turned out my 30 yard pin was 27 yards. So it was, it was doing me an okay job, but once you move into, you know, precision, trying to get it into the vitals, you know, the eight ring, the 10 ring, the 12 ring, um, it, it was failing me and everything was low. So I went back home. I, I went back through all my pins and I found that they were all off just a little bit, except for my 50, because I had shot that in the cold bow. But, you know, my, my 60 was something like 63. My 40 was, I don't remember. It was, it wasn't 40, 42, something like that. And, uh, and then I just told you about, about my 30. And so I fixed all those and uh, got them sighted into my range finder, went back to the course and uh shot 96 percent um on hit just a simple hit or miss eight ring counted as a hit anything less than the eight ring counted as a miss and i was back up actually a little higher than what i should have been so the takeaway on that is as you're learning your equipment you're going to pick up on things that are going to make you more accurate and so for those of you that have not precisely shot shot your bow uh, to each pin go do that and i recommend um, a three or a four shot group per yardage and only shoot one yardage at a time one pin at a time go go set up your 30 and shoot three or four arrows um if for you guys that are great shots don't shoot at the same bull or you're going to break arrows um that's not usually a problem for me but as i get as i get better i can i can start hitting arrows and then you're just ripping fletches up and you know, i've never had a robin hood but it can happen but anyways you, you run three or four arrows and really take your time and look and see where you're hitting. And then once you've dialed that pin, move to the next pin. And when I say three or four arrows, I mean for that group, and then I walk up and pull them. I don't like to shoot more than three or four at a time when I'm trying to sight a bow in because I, I, I get a little fatigued. And uh, just walking up the target, pulling the arrows lets me rest a little bit, and then I'm fresh for the next set. So shoot a three or four arrow set and uh, really pay attention to how you're hitting. And you may even notice that you're hitting the bull, but you're hitting low in the bull. Um, and if you're going to go to a 3D archery shoot, that's going to matter, especially if you're trying to hit the 12 ring. So really pay attention to that. And I think most of us will end up adjusting our bows and in the long run shooting better. Um, 
as we leave the subject, um, I've continued shooting a cold bow since the, ch- the challenge ended for me. I don't know, early May. I think I've shot 17 more days of cold bow. And what I and it's not truly cold bow, but it's first arrow of the day. I've been tracking first arrow of the day. Um, and the reason it's not truly cold bow is because after that first arrow, I may continue to practice, you know, go to the range, whatever, which is different than the cold bow. There's no practice between days because it's supposed to mimic hunting where a lot of times we don't get to practice between days. Uh, and I've crept up in, I think I was 82% last night when I checked. So I finished the cold bow at 60%. Now I'm at 82% on first arrow of the day, which is an improvement, but I've also practiced between days too. That, that, that improvement could simply be chalked up to that. So I'm going to stay at the 55 yards all summer, even though I probably shouldn't take it an a-, a shot at an animal right now at 55 yards based on my stats. Um, but I'm going to continue to practice at it because it gives me that benchmark to compare it to. And, uh, and then as, as summer goes on, I should see that percentage creep up. Or if I keep changing my MER, it, it, it's hard to track. Am I getting better or am I not? So just, just a couple things I took away from it. Uh, let's see, our cold bore challenge. You've heard Sam and Justin talking about that on the podcast. Our cold bore is a different version of the cold bow. This is for rifles. And uh, that started on, oh, I think June 2nd or 3rd. Um, it runs for five weeks. Uh, it's a little different than the cold bow. You get a shoot. Uh, you only have to shoot two days to get qualified to enter for the prizes. We have killer prizes. I keep mentioning that Swarovski, uh, their small spotter, uh, ATC, I think it's called, or the CTC. Um, it's right. I think it's the ATC. Uh, we've got that in there, and um, I, I'm a little jealous on that one because I don't have one yet. You know, we had a chance to get one uh, for me, and I decided. I told Ryan, "Let's go ahead and put it in the in the cold bore. Uh, get some guys excited to come out." And uh, uh, so I shot in it. I can't win, but uh, none of our staff can win. But a lot of us are shooting in it. So I shot in it. Uh, what the rules say say is you have to shoot at least 400 yards to get entered. Um, if you want to shoot 600 yards you actually have to hit the target two times at 600 yards before you can move on to two more qualifying shots at any yardage bond beyond 600 that you want to choose but to get those extra entries you actually have to hit the vitals at 600 both times so it's been really interesting to watch this i totally encourage everybody whether you're entered or not go watch the other shooters and read their comments you learn so much about shooting in both the cold bow and the cold bore. You learn a lot. First thing you learn is a lot of guys just, we're not as good as we think we are. It's harder when you only get that one shot and, and, you're, and you're mimicking hunting. Um, and, and, and of course, you know, we know this. That's why we, we host these competitions. But it's, it's really, excuse me, they're not competitions. They're challenges, okay? You're not competing against each other. You're challenging yourself. Uh, that's why we host these because it gives you a chance to test yourself. And uh, we find that, you know, most guys uh, are, are not hitting as well as they thought. And, and, and we'll have some stats on this too. Okay. We will have somebody put this together for the cold, the cold bore. So when I say most or many, I mean, that's, that's an estimation. A lot of guys are hitting, um, but, but many aren't, especially the guys that are, that are trying to shoot the, the, the 600 plus somebody just ran a quick total of, I think that out of the 32 entries that were in there on the day they ran it, uh, uh, I think seven of them 
had tried for 600 and at least a couple of those had missed. And so that's what's cool about reading through these comments is you get to kind of see where they're at. If you're looking for it, it's on the Rockslide forum. Go down to the Long Range forum, uh, click there, then look at the top of the forum. They're what we call stickies because we stick them to the top of the forum. Uh, go, go through there. There's a there's a Q&A forum where you can discuss the challenge, and then there's the challenge forum. That, that, that You can't comment in there. That's just for entries. But go through there. Um, and there's there's some some great shooters in there as well. Some of these guys are just nailing it at the 600 yards. You know, they got bull shots in there. They've already qualified to move on. Uh, so it, it's fun to watch, and it's very educational. You get to see everybody's equipment, how they're doing things, um, you know, who's dialing, who's not. Uh, the, the other thing I kind of noticed is the guys that are choosing to shoot less than 600, that was me. I chose 450 yards as my MER for this challenge. I noticed that their hit rate is really no better than the guys that are shooting 600. And I think that's just because guys are being honest. Like, you know, if, if they've got the skills, they're trying for longer yardages. If they don't have the skills, they're, they're staying with that 400 to under 600. But it looked to me when I went through it, like that, the, that the hit rate was about the same, which is good. That tells me people are kind of staying in their lane because if those shorter range guys were trying for 600, they'd be even, they'd be even less, uh, effective. And the, and the 600 yard guys that are pushing themselves, if they were backing up to 400, you know, yeah, they'd be, they'd be, shooting into the same hole. So anyways, it's doing what it's supposed to do. If you're wondering how I did, um, I practiced for a few weeks ahead of time, just doing, doing some cold bores and I wanted to go with 500 and, uh, with a couple of practice sessions, I figured out I was only about a 50% hit on 500 yards with my two shots. So one would be in the 10 inch vital. The other one would be out. And I, and I, and I practiced it a couple times and I just figured out, you know, that's still too far for me. You know, I've never killed a mule deer over about, mm, I think my furthest shot was 460 yards back in 2015. Everything has been from, from there in, I've only killed a couple over 400. And up until I put hash marks in my scopes, everything was 300 and in so those are long yardages for me and and on it's 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 how i like to hunt i like to stock in i like to have the high percentage shot and it's also how to kill big mule deer for me anyways most of these big mule deer on hunted seasons are living in the the, the cover or uh really tough terrain to get a shot in. And so just the way it works out, I end up being close to them. I may be able to see them from a long distance, but I can't get a shot at them. You know, I may be able to see them from 1500 yards to 2000 yards, but to get a shot at them, I kind of have to be in that 100 to 400 yard range. So, so that's why I've always focused on that. And so for the cold bore, I went with 450 yards. Um, in my practice sessions, um, I was hundred percent of my shots. I was staying in the 10 inch bull. Um, I'd already embarrassed myself in the cold bow, so I didn't want to do it again in the cold bore. So I went with the 450 and, um, I, I shot opening day of the challenge, uh, hit the bull. And then you have to wait to the next calendar day to shoot. So I did, I went out the next day and, uh, hit the bull. Um, I ended up with about an inch group with the two shots. I guess that would be quarter MOA, which is, which is great. Uh, that tells me that Christensen, uh, summit tie and 270 Winchester short mag will do it. And on a good day, I can do it too. 
but I almost feel like I cheated. I don't know if you saw my post uh, in there. I, I don't know. I think I'm like post number 32 or 31 or something like that. If you go to the challenge, uh, I felt like I was cheating in the sense of I landed on two days with almost no wind. I think the first day there was no wind at the target. I had like three or four mile an hour at the shooting position, um, which is almost nothing for that kind of yardage with a flat shooting rifle, uh, a fast rifle. I shoot 32, 49 uh, feet per second. Um, and then the second day, I did have a little more wind at the target. I was at about, uh, this was measured with wind meter, about six mile, six mile an hour plus down at the target and uh, right around in there at the shooting position but that's still very low wind there's days i've been up to that range you know it's 20 30 mile an hour so i got lucky and landed uh two days with with low wind you know that that attributes to my success and you know the whole thing the whole thinking behind maximum effective yardage is also taking in, into conditions. What is my maximum effective yardage on the best day? And, and, and that's where I'm picking that 450. So what if I get on the mountain and I've got worse conditions than that? Well, you're supposed to stalk in closer. That's, that's, that's the whole idea behind a maximum effective yardage, either pass the shot or stalk in closer. So just a few things that we talk about here on the Rockslide forums. If you're not a member of the Rockslide forums, get on over there. You're, you're Missing, missing the conversation. Uh, a lot of good discussions on there. I learned so much on Rock Slides, so much from, from our members. Um, and, and the thing I'm learning about uh, shooting is I need to stock in closer. I, I like those high percentage hits. And uh, better for me, missing sucks. Uh, thanks to, to those of you that came out for my film a few weeks ago, Breaking the Slump. And you know what I mean when I say missing su uh, sucks if you watched my <laughs> film, because I do miss. Uh, uh, let's see. Um, so today, I think I'll wrap up the podcast with uh, reading another chapter from my book here. Uh, we have uh, read the first couple of chapters. Uh, we are to the third one here. Uh, this is called Icon of the West. So I'll jump right into my, my, this is my first book, Hunting Big Mule Deer, How to Take the Best Buck of Your Life. If you're interested in this book or my second book, The Stories, just jump on Amazon, uh, type in Hunting Big Mule Deer, it should come right up. Uh, but if not, just stick around on the Rockcast. I'll be reading this book over the next few months. So here we go. Icon of the West. Why we are drawn. While I love big bull elk, bighorn sheep, river-run salmon, western whitetails, and record-smashing black-tailed deer. Nothing embodies the West like mule deer. Ask most hunters what is the hardest trophy to take in North America, and most will say it is a big mule deer. While I'm not here to argue whether that is true or not, big bull elk are very tough to kill. Big rams are certainly no pushover, and big white-tailed bucks annually elude millions of hunters. For one reason or another, big mule deer seem to have captured the hearts and minds of a generation of hunters. Could it be the fact that they grow the largest antlers of deer in North America? I realize elk and moose are deer, but come on, everyone thinks of them as elk and moose, right? Maybe it's because they've declined in recent decades while other species have flourished. Everyone loves the underdog, and anything that is rare is valuable. Could it be that many big mule deer inhabit some of the most gorgeous country God created on earth, the Rocky Mountains? Is it because they symbolize all that is the West? I think it is for all these reasons and more. 
It is easy to believe that many people pursue big mule deer for their antlers. While that may be true, for me it has become something more. To me, to hunt mule deer successfully is to become part of their environment and their place of life. They are a completely different creature than a human, if you want to even call us a creature. We can think, reason, and use tools, but physically, we are nothing by comparison. A big mule deer can weigh 350 pounds on the hoof and is in peak physical condition most of his life. Imagine a 350-pound man in peak condition able to sprint 40 miles per hour, survive weeks of sub-below zero temperatures, with hearing, eyesight, and scent detection dozens to hundreds of times better than yours or mine. You get the picture. To kill big mule deer, you have to immerse yourself in their world, and you have to become like them. Always watching, always listening, always perceiving, always learning. If you're lucky, you'll never take your best buck from a pickup truck or an ATV, as that can only happen once in several lifetimes. If you're lucky, you'll take your best buck by learning to become part of their world. Then the action is repeatable. In mule deer country, we are strangers in a strange land. A land of silence, scent, vision, and perception that we cannot achieve. If it weren't for our tools and our brains, we'd never succeed. We can improve our skills, but we can't master the mule deer. To me, that is why we are drawn. What is a big mule deer? As the term big is in the title of this book, I need to explain what exactly that means. If you study older bucks as long as I have, you'll find that behavior-wise, they are a subset of the species. They behave completely differently from the rest of the herd, and it's why so few hunters are successful at killing them. Here is my definition of a big mule deer. Age. This is one of the three critical factors that determine the size of a mule deer buck. I list it first because without age, it is very unusual for any buck to become big. Because I've lab-aged nearly all of my big bucks, and those of many other hunters, I have a pretty good barometer of how old big bucks are. I found that virtually all big mule deer are at least four years old. There are cases of a few Boone and Crockett bucks in the books that were three years old, but that is extremely rare. For a buck to get big, he needs four candles on his birthday cake. Body size. While size can vary according to latitude, Bergman's Law states that the further north you move, the bigger the bodies of mammals become. All the bucks I've aged are at least four years old, have big bodies for the country they came from. They will be big enough that you will notice their size almost immediately, often before you've even noticed the antlers. They'll be longer, taller, and just plain bigger than the other deer. I've even weighed several of my bucks on good scales. Field dressed, they range between 200 and 285 pounds, which figures out to be about 250 to 350 pounds on the hoof. It takes at least four years for a buck to reach this size, and they typically get heavier up until their last year or so of life. Antler diameter. While I love the record books, there are other inches that constitute a big mule deer. The pedicles from which the antlers grow typically gain diameter as the buck ages. So no matter the score, if you kill a buck with antler bases of five to six inches, you very likely killed a buck four years or older. This is something commanding about a heavy antlered buck that spread, height, and score cannot make up for. 
antler width. If you understand the record books, you'll see that most widely accepted scoring systems don't consider outside width in the final score. I understand that and I don't challenge it. However, most of us DIY hunters can't be so picky. Often when you see a big buck, the first thing that catches your eye is width. Not all big bucks are wide, but wide bucks are big. Wide bucks are also rare. I spend 60 plus days a year looking exclusively for big mule deer and see only one or two that are 30 inches or wider each year. I have passed up a few wide bucks over the years, but only because they were young bucks with small bodies and light antlers. Score. I saved this one for last as I think it is less relevant these days than in the past. Big mule deer, especially those that make Boone and Crockett's all-time list with a minimum net score of 190 typical or 230 non-typical, are very, very rare. How rare? I've spent over 37 years in some of the best Boone and Crockett mule deer country in Idaho, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and Nevada. Yet, I've only seen four or five typicals that would make the all-time list and zero, yes, zero non-typicals. It's because of this rarity that I don't list score first. If I did, you may not appreciate the fact that there are many big mule deer alive and well that won't make the book. Yet 99% of us DIY hunters will be happy with them. However, I still use score in my definition of big. I think any buck that is 180 inches gross Boone and Crockett is big. Most hunters who see a buck like that on the hoof hands down agree with me and will pass them up only if they've seen a bigger one in the area or have a very special draw tag. In all my scouting and hunting, I might see three to five bucks a year that exceed that size, so I know they're rare and big. Spend a few decades and a thousand days in mule deer country, then let me know if you agree or disagree with my definition. Unless you're very wealthy and can hunt some of the best, west, best of the West regularly, I bet you will agree with me. For the rest of this book, if you read the word big, I'm referring to a buck that is older, experienced in the way of the hunter, and has several of the characteristics given above. You may find the occasional exception, the 30-inch buck lab-aged at 3 years old, or the 10-year-old buck with 22-inch light antlers, but by and large, if a mule deer is big, he is rare and valuable and must be hunted differently than the younger, smaller bucks. Onyx Hunt is the number one GPS hunting app in the industry. And one reason they're leading is because they're continually providing updates to the Onyx Hunt app. Updates like the new Onyx in-dash navigation suite. From the time you slide into the seat of your vehicle, viewing Onyx Hunt with CarPlay and Android Auto allows you to easily flow from Onyx to the road in front of you, ensuring you know exactly where you are and how to get where you're heading. Want directions to a certain point in the Onyx Hunt app, but don't want to keep glancing at your phone? Use the Navigate To feature to navigate to your saved waypoints. This is true off-road navigation for hunters. You can now use the Onyx Hunt app hands-free and have access to your map markups, public-private boundaries, routing, offline maps, and more. Do it all from the seat of your truck. If you're ready to make the jump, save 20% by using the code ROCKCAST at checkout. How Mule Deer Hunting Has Changed 
Most mule deer hunters and experts agree that the 1950s and 60s were the peak of mule deer herds and big bucks. While theories abound on the reasons, most conclude that we may never see that era again. Actually, that is okay with me. I was born when I was born, and that just so happened to be in the final years of that era. In a way, I'm glad I didn't experience it because it would have spoiled me rotten. Not so much anymore, but in the 80s and 90s, I met many buck hunters who'd simply given up because all the big bucks are gone. I remember hunters standing up at fish and game meetings angry because they would hunt three days and never see a 30-incher like they had so commonly seen in the past. There were hunters around who'd kill big bucks after work just a few miles from town. Most of those guys just quit hunting once the hunting got tough. I may have done the same if I had experienced the true heyday of mule deer like they had. In the 1970s, mule deer herds were fairly stable, but big bucks were getting harder to kill. Formerly, many seasons were designed for the big buck hunter to be successful. Seasons ran into November and even December on over-the-counter tags. Biologists were starting to trim those seasons back as too many big bucks were being killed as technology and more free time became common. Even early scopes changed hunting more than you might think. There were some pretty hard winters around the West in the latter half of the 1970s, but herds bounced back fairly quickly. More people were also starting to travel further to hunt mule deer. In the 1980s, there, it wasn't a bad time for big mule deer. There were a few ATVs and most seasons were fairly liberal with good tags, easy to obtain. Any serious hunter could kill good bucks and didn't usually have to get far from a road to do it. There were a few hunters serious enough to pack in 10 miles for just a mule deer. Very few hunters though. Then in 1983, Kurt Darner released his book, How to Find Giant Mule Deer. While Kurt has had his troubles with the law, no one can argue the fact that he inspired a generation of trophy mule deer hunters. At the time, Kurt had killed over a dozen Boone and Crockett mule deer, a feat no one before or since has accomplished. Only one of those deers has been disputed. Most hunters took great interest in that book, which became a bestseller in the how-to genre. Kurt sold over 20,000 copies, quite a feat for a self-published book in the days before the internet. Before giant bucks, people thought Boone and Crockett bucks were nearly mythical and virtually no one believed that you could kill one on purpose. Well, Kurt had killed a dozen on purpose and detailed all his methods in the book. For the first time on a national scale, the trophy mule deer hunter was born. Besides placing a greater focus on Boone and Crockett producing counties and units, the book spawned the high country hunter. Ridges and peaks that had been visited only by the occasional bass sheep herder were now the destination of thousands of mule deer hunters. While the hunters wore cotton underwear, rarely used binoculars, and stood on the skyline, there were still enough undisturbed bucks that a few new trophy hunters still killed some whoppers. Just a few years later, a small new publication further changed the high country of Wyoming, Idaho, and Colorado. Eastman's Hunting Journal, started by Mike Eastman. Stories and photos from regular guys with huge bucks taken in high lonely basins graced the pages. The serious hunters I knew hated Eastman's concept, but most relented and figured, if you can't beat them, join them. Suddenly, the high country hunter was in vogue and hunters streamed into the western wilderness country. 
places such as Wyoming's Grays River and Hoback, Colorado's federal wilderness areas, Idaho's Sawtooth Range, Utah's Wasatch, and Nevada's Ruby Mountains were the places to find big mule deer. I knew a few mule deer hunters who got in on the bounty. They were seeing and killing giant bucks like those that hadn't been seen since the 1960s. Within a few years, the newly invented ATV was making its way into every ridgetop in the West, and the high country was effectively shrinking. The decline in quality hunting, which had been characterized by easy-to-obtain tags, little competition, and quite a few big bucks, had begun. By the time the killer winter of 92-93, the worst I've seen in my life, hit, after five years of drought, the change was upon us. In 93, the best deer hunters I knew wore only frowns. Idaho, Colorado, Utah, Montana, Nevada, and Wyoming all had been affected. Many hunters quit. Just plain quit. There was a genuine sense of panic across the West, and many people thought the mule deer would never recover. Organizations such as the Rocky Mountain Mule Deer Federation the precursor to the Mule Deer Foundation, and others, along with thousands of hunters and state game agencies, rallied for the cause. More conservative conservative management strategies were becoming common across the West. Colorado, the nation's mule deer factory, implemented a three-day season. Idaho dumped its OTC rut hunts. Utah replaced rifle hunts with muzzleloader hunts and completely closed some units. And every... State switched more OTC hunts to limited quota hunts. All these efforts, along with improvements in weather, helped get big mule deer back on their feet. But the big picture had really changed for the individual trophy hunter. It was getting tougher to kill big mule deer. As tags were fewer, the odds of drawing for limited quota hunts, while always tough, were worsening, and more hunters were forced into the remaining OTC units. Anything rare is valuable. Have you heard of the rare Kopi Luwak coffee made it by the digestions of coffee beans through the Asian palm Kavet cat in Indonesia? People pay 75 bucks a cup. With big mule deer harder to come by, outfitters and landowners and some state game agencies began to focus on growing trophy bucks. It was widely agreed in the mid-1990s that the only North American big game trophy that couldn't be bought was a mule deer. Giant elk, sheep, whitetails, antelope, and bears were accessible to the hunter with a big wallet, but mule deer for the most part were not. With the focus on trophy management and the realization by state game agencies that private landowners held some of the most valuable habitat, especially winter range for mule deer, landowner tag systems were born or expanded. Outfitters leased the best private land and implemented management strategies to grow more big bucks. This meant they had to sell fewer hunts, so prices doubled, tripled, and quadrupled. Suddenly, some people could actually buy a trophy mule deer. The 90s also saw an expansion of elk herds across the West as a result of conservation, land use practices, and habitat changes that favored elk more than mule deer. While opinions on the competition of elk versus mule deer abound, most people agree that more elk means fewer mule deer, and in many places that is holding true. With the increased interest in big gnarly bucks, media, including magazines and the newly born web, further increased interest. Regular everyday hunters could get national attention on the cover of a magazine where before only a few hunting superstars could do that. 
With the war on terror beginning in 2001 and the invasion of Afghanistan, our military fought its first mountain war since Korea 50 years earlier. The military dumped billions into improving outdated gear, and within just a few short years, mountain gear for hunters improved by leaps and bounds. Hunters could stay longer and hunt harder than ever before. With the rise of the internet, information on trophy mule deer hunts became widely available. A small publication began in 1995 by Garth Carter, The Hunt and Fool. It became a leader in providing trophy hunting info to the common man. Other media jumped on board and draw odds for the new limited quota hunts from went from low to dismal to horrible. During this time, more hunters began to look to primitive weapon hunts to hunt mule deer. Good rifle hunts were very hard to draw, but archery and muzzleloader hunters could hunt those same units without waiting years for a tag. For probably first time since the Ute Indian era, some giant mule deer began to fall to bow hunters and muzzleloaders in significant numbers. It's no coincidence to me that the number one big mule deer hunter currently is an archer from Arizona, Randy Ulmer. He's shown the world that a modern compound bow can put more big mule deer on the ground than a modern firearm for the individual hunter. As I write this, I'd say the current state of mule deer is pretty good. In a few places, it's much better if you can get a tag. Some places it's bad, but in most places it's fairly stable. On average, it's not as good as it was in the 80s, but it is better than it was in the 90s. There is enough public interest for the species to get the attention and help that mule deer need. There is certainly the problem of shrinking habitat, and over the long term that could be detrimental to not just mule deer, but elk too. However, I think mule deer are more adaptable than previously thought. Few places have seen the expansion of human development into mule deer habitat like Colorado, but their mule deer, in part because of more conservative management, are doing well. Most states are managing mule deer better with laws and initiatives to protect mule deer and improve habitat. It seems that if the habitat is functioning, a little management goes a long way in helping big mule deer. In some units, just a small decreasing hunting pressure makes a big difference. Weather is always the wild card, and it's hard to predict how it will affect the mule deer's future. In the Rocky Mountains, hard winters affect mule deer greatly, as does long-term drought but they ha always have. Wolves are another wild card. They've affected elk herds more than mule deer herds, but only time will tell. We're managing wolves through hunting now, and I believe that if state game agencies are allowed to do their jobs, and there is not a fundamental shift in wolf management policies, a balance can be found. Buck hunting always ebbed and flowed, and will continue to do so. While the easy bucks are mostly gone, don't lose heart. It's just been a few months since I've hunted an 8x9, 210-inch non-typical buck with greater than a 30-inch spread on an OTC unit. I killed a 180 buck with a muzzleloader in Colorado just a week later, then ended the rifle season with an 8-year-old, lab-aged, heavy buck with 6-inch bases on a hunt where I saw no other hunter in 9 days. The big ones are still out there, and in enough numbers that a dedicated and adaptable hunter can kill more than a few of them. If you want to take the best buck of your life, then you need to understand where we've come from and where we're going. You have to learn enough about mule deer that you can adapt to changes affecting them. In my hunting career, many changes, as detailed here, have affected mule deer, but I'm adapting too. 
I can absolutely say that I'm glad I didn't give up even when things didn't look so great. I learned so much in those decades, enjoyed, enjoyed so many hunts, and even killed quite a few big mule deer. You can too. While mule deer will continue to ebb and flow, I certainly don't have a sky is falling attitude. If I believed what some hunters say, I'd feel guilty even hunting mule deer. I also believe the mule deer's future can be good if enough sportsmen care and act on it. I think trophy hunters can bring a lot of help to mule deer simply because we're the most passionate about them. Big mule deer bucks show up in numbers only when the whole herd is functioning. For that to happen, we have to care deeply. In part, that is why I'm writing this book, to bring a greater attention to the true icon of the West, the mule deer. Mm-hmm.